This program is made possible by grants from Humanities Kansas and the Sunflower Foundation in partnership with the Gary County Historical Society. This is Pandemic on the Prairie, a podcast about the 1918 influenza pandemic in Kansas and what local stories tell us about the American experience more broadly. I'm your host, Kara Heights. Join me as we learn about this important moment in history and perhaps through the past, come to better understand the present. Welcome to our first mini-episode of Pandemic on the Prairie. So when I'm digging through archives, interviewing people, taking deep dives into newspapers.com, I come across a lot of interesting material that doesn't quite make it into the main episodes. Putting together a podcast episode requires a lot of cutting. Uh, Kill your darlings, I think, is the advice often given to writers. But there are some parts of these stories that it really just eats me up to have to cut out. So I decided to create mini-episodes as a place to tell some of the stories cut out of the main episodes. Think of this as a place where my darlings can live on. In late January and early February of 1918, Dr. Loring Miner started seeing his patients in Haskell County, Kansas, come down with influenza. But this was no ordinary strain of influenza. It spread fast and struck hard, knocking down typically healthy people and even killing a few. And while it disappeared from the southwest corner of Kansas by March, Miner was still deeply troubled by what he saw. And he was right to be troubled because, as we now know, this could have been one of the earliest outbreaks of the first wave of the influenza pandemic of 1918 to 1920, and possibly even its origin point. So in the main episode, The Kansas Flu, I spoke with historian John Barry about his research on this early outbreak in Haskell County, Kansas, as a possible starting place for the flu pandemic. And if you have not heard that episode yet, I highly recommend that you go give it a listen. And in his book, The Great Influenza, Professor Barry goes into a lot of detail about Dr. Loring Miner and really puts together a compelling portrait of the man. So compelling, in fact, that I decided to go searching on my own to find out more about this somewhat unusual country doctor. And I learned some great family stories about Dr. Miner from two of his great-granddaughters. A big thanks to both of them for talking with me. So Dr. Miner was a bit different than the typical Kansas frontier doctor. I actually have two favorite anecdotes about Dr. Miner that I think really encapsulate the man. First is the fact that every year he would reread the classics of Greek literature in Greek. But he also ate his peas with a knife. These two factoids were told to me by a family member, one right after another, and I think this connection is kind of on purpose. And my other favorite anecdote is that, well, he did like to drink, but many of his patients commented that they would rather have Dr. Minor treat them drunk than any other doctor sober. So Dr. Miner is well-educated and an intellectual, but he's also a practical frontiersman and maybe a little bit rough around the edges. John Barry describes him as an unusual man who was gruff and someone who didn't suffer fools. He was tall with angular features, had a handlebar mustache, which of course was quite popular at the time, and had a certain presence of personality that you could not ignore. He was also a skilled physician, something much needed in rural areas in that era. 
There's a photo of Dr. Miner on the podcast website if you're curious to take a look at it. I'll give you the web address at the end of the episode. Loring Miner was born in 1860 in Athens, Ohio, and studied at Ohio University in Athens. So maybe being from a place called Athens helped create his love of ancient Greece? And at Ohio University, he would have studied literature and the classics, and this stayed with him his whole life. One of his great-granddaughters noted that he could recite William Colling Bryant's poem, Thanatopsis, from memory. He received his M.D. from Columbus Medical College in 1886, and in 1887, eager for adventure, he headed to western Kansas to practice medicine. A couple of years later, he married Lorena Smith, with whom he would have five children, and whose family was one of the largest landholders in the area. Not a bad family to marry into. And eventually, they settled in Haskell County, living in the towns of Ingalls, Santa Fe, and finally, Sublette. Miner was the only physician in Haskell County and adjacent Grant County for a long time, and this was homesteader and cattle ranch country at the time, so his patients were spread out over hundreds of square miles. So to see patients, Dr. Miner would have to be gone often overnight, sometimes multiple nights, in order to attend to them. In the early years of his practice, he reached his patients via horse and buggy, sometimes even with coyotes following behind the cart through those long stretches of countryside. Dr. Miner's son, who would sometimes accompany his father on calls and also became a doctor himself later on, told his children that he once observed his father swim a buggy across the river in a flood because he needed to make a call. People in the area knew just how dedicated a doctor he was. But all these things are kind of just part of being a frontier doctor in the late 1800s and early years of the 1900s. Lots of physicians in rural areas lived under similar circumstances and were dedicated to their patients. What makes Dr. Miner interesting is how he also was a man of modern science, someone who accepted and even embraced advances in medicine and technology, which certainly goes against the common stereotype of the rural doctor at the turn of the century. For example... Dr. Miner upgraded from the horse and buggy as soon as he could when automobiles came along, much faster for getting across those wide-open spaces to see his patients. Dr. Miner's daughter-in-law once told a reporter, He had one of the first cars in the county, a two-cylinder Rio. It was no good. You didn't know when you left how far you would get, so we soon got rid of it. Next was a Studebaker. His welcoming of new advances was not just limited to vehicles. Although the germ theory of disease was not widely accepted when he began practicing medicine, he quickly embraced it, which was not the case for all doctors of his generation. He also built his own home laboratory, complete with a microscope with which he examined samples taken from his patients. And by the way, you can see a photo of his actual microscope on the podcast website. It's still in the family, displayed on top of a piano at one of his great-grandchildren's homes. It's really cool to look at. He utilized antitoxin treatments for diphtheria and tetanus when they were still new advances, and he consulted his own library of scientific texts when puzzling out medical problems, including when he faced a strange influenza outbreak in January and February of 1918. Dr. Miner also served as community at various times as the county coroner, the public health officer for Haskell County, and even the chair of the local Democratic Party. He also owned a drugstore in Sublet, which advertised in the local paper as having, quote, a complete line of drugs, oil, and paint, price and quality right. <laughs> he really had his hand in a variety of enterprises, didn't he? 
He died in 1935 at the age of 74, but not of illness or age-related causes. He actually died in a car wreck. The family's speculation is that his medical bag fell off his seat, which by the way means he was still seeing patients at age 74. And when he reached down for the bag, his car went off the road and hit a telephone pole. It's kind of a sad ending, but definitely Loring Minor had an amazing life overall. I just love the image of Dr. Miner in his home in the small town of Sublette, rural Haskell County, peering into a microscope while sipping on a whiskey, books of Greek literature and medical manuals on the shelf, then taking a break to go eat some peas with a knife, and then maybe hopping in a Studebaker to see a patient. I really wish I could have met this guy. So when I interviewed historian John Barry about the possible Kansas origins of the flu pandemic, we talked more about Dr. Miner. So to understand why a doctor like Loring Minor was so notable, I asked John Barry to put Dr. Minor in the larger context of the medical profession at the time. American medical education in the 19th century was, as a general rule, horrible, uh, the worst in the world. Uh, even at Harvard, you could fail four out of nine courses and still get an MD. In the 1880s, 20 years after Pasteur is making extraordinary discoveries. Uh, nobody at Harvard, nobody at Columbia, nobody at most medical schools even had a microscope. We're talking about faculty here, not students. Students, as a general rule, never examined a patient. In most schools, they never even conducted autopsies. Classes were lectures. If you could pay the tuition, you were admitted because the faculty salaries all came directly from tuition payments. So there was no reason to reject anyone. So it was easier to get into medical school than into a college. Nonetheless, a lot of people who went into medicine were extremely serious about what they were doing and tried hard to educate themselves. Uh, and, and Lorraine Minor was you know, sort of equal to the best in that breed, quite serious about medicine, quite serious about education, the best of uh, country doctor types. Medical education changed radically after the founding of Johns Hopkins Medical School. That was as, as good a school as any in the world. Uh, and American medical, you know, other universities had to improve to compete with it. In addition, there was a scandalous report called the Flexner Report in 1910, exposed to the public just how bad medical education was as a result of which, you know, approximately half of the American medical schools closed down or merged themselves out of existence within a couple of years after that report came out. You know, but minor, one of minor sons uh, became a doctor with a very good education. So I say, you know, minor was dedicated and, and educated himself and was fully scientific and was in, uh, you know, communication routinely with his son about medical issues. So to quote William Welsh, who was the dean of the Johns Hopkins Medical School and was easily the most powerful person in the history of American medicine and arguably the most powerful person in the history of American science, said the results were much better than the system. The system was lousy in the 19th century, but a lot of doctors, because of their personal dedication and curiosity and so forth, were pretty good. And I know it was one of them. 
Of course, the flu came back to Haskell County in the fall of 1918 with the deadly second wave of the pandemic. But Dr. Miner was ready. On November 14, 1918, the sublet monitor carried the following item. Dr. Miner reports all his flu cases in this county are convalescent. He has had 46 cases without losing a case. The pandemic had yet again found the prairie, but science and modern medicine had also come in the form of Dr. Loring Miner. Thanks for listening to this mini-episode of Pandemic on the Prairie. You can listen to other episodes as well as get additional information about Dr. Loring Miner and other subjects that we cover at our website, www.1918flukansas.com. That's www.1918fluks.com. See you next time. It was in 19... 119, yes, man.